morning, uh, my name is Lee, and I'll be doing the Bible reading this morning. The reading comes from three different places in the Bible. So the first one is Mark 1, verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. The second reading is from Mark 6, verse 31. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And the last reading is from Luke 5, verse 15. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Thank you, Lee. The question I want to ask you this morning is, where do you get your strength from? When you are lacking in strength for whatever reason, maybe it's a discouragement you've faced, maybe it is just a long season Whatever it is that makes you a little weak and a little depleted, where do you get your strength from? Where do you get that stuff that pushes you through difficult times? Where do you get your strength? Where do you anchor your soul? You know, the, the life feels like whether you've, you've read some difficult news, whether you've uh, faced something tricky, it feels like the waves of life tend to come and knock us off and we find ourselves asking questions about all sorts of stuff. Where do you anchor your soul? Where do you find your strength? What settles you when it just seems like there is so much that can be unsettling? We live in a world that loves, probably more than ever before, loves the public space. Right? We love the public space. Whether it's the advent of Facebook, which uh, means that your coffee that you drink or drank yesterday, there's at least five people who know where you drank it and which one it was. Whether it was a latte or a flat white, there's a bunch of people who know where you had your coffee yesterday and whether you enjoyed it or not. And you might be going, I didn't post that. It doesn't matter. Someone posted it for you. And it was either your spouse or your kid or your family, friends, whatever it is, people are posting each other's lives so you can be somewhere and people, you know, a few days later go, she looked like you had an amazing day on the beach. And I'm like, yeah, but no one else was there. How do you know? Ah. Oh. I know who you were with. It got posted. And our lives are increasingly public. Sometimes we choose it and we publicize it and we post all the stuff about our kids or our friends or our family. Sometimes it's other people doing it on our behalf without even asking. And the point is, is we live in an increasingly public world. And, and by the way, it's not always Instagram or Facebook. There's all kinds of public things. I, I find people going, hey, nice run the other day, Rog. Mark said it this morning. Like, oh, yeah. All my runs get posted publicly because of my watch that tracks me, sends it onto a place, and then my mates are watching where I ran and how fast I ran. And you, some people know when you get a job or you finished a job because you're in LinkedIn or something like it. The point is we live in this increasingly public world. And because we live in an increasingly public world, we live in an increasingly competitive world. 
You see, the more public you are, the more comparison you have. The more comparison you have, the more competitive it feels. And so what ends up happening is we create these facades of the fact that we are winning, that we're doing well. We're trying our best to, be, to keep up with whatever it is that we see around us. And you might be going, I'm tired of hearing about Facebook. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Instagram. But most of us have a space where we find ourselves comparing. If you're not on Instagram, it's a good chance you are on LinkedIn and that you do see who got the latest job and who did get a promotion and you do get to see their CV and you do get to compare and go, wow. And what theologians are beginning to describe is this new human condition called ontological lightness. Say that to the person next to you, ontological lightness. Now explain it to them. Tell them what that means. Listen to this. Theologians refer to this condition as the reality that when I stop doing and I simply listen to my heart, I'm not anchored to anything substantive. I become aware that my very identity is synonymous with my activity. I have this feeling that if I don't keep doing something, I might not actually be someone. I have so attached my self-worth to my activity that if I stop acting out whatever it may be, I feel this deep sense of anxiety that I actually don't have much worth. This is expressed and experienced in so many ways. I thought of three acute experiences that I've witnessed over the years. The one is uh, maternity leave. <laughs> a lady, a woman has a child, and suddenly she has, you know, between four months and a year without doing what she's been doing for a number of years. And yes, there are hormonal realities, but, but I've, I've had this verified by many women. One of the great uh, anxieties is, am I doing anything meaningful? It, it's what we call ontological lightness. You, you don't feel like you're a meaningful contributor to the world because for the last however many decades, your value has been attached to your activity. What you have been able to output, as the culture says, is valuable. And so much of our culture says your value, your worth is attached to your career. And suddenly that's gone. The same is often said uh, of people who retire. Who retire and, and suddenly these three to five decades of work and energy are just gone. And into that space comes this question of who am I really? Now that I'm not doing the thing I've been doing for so long. The uh, increase of suicides amongst professional sports people who, uh, who retire, often at the age of 30, 28, 26, and all their life has been based on this one single activity that is no longer. The, the, the theologians call it ontological lightness, our sense of being so radically attached to what we have been doing. And it's into this space, I suppose, that many of us experience life and our activity. And, and in many ways, it's our fear of ever slowing down, of ever stopping, of ever actually facing what's really going on. We, we create what uh, uh, some people call a false self. The false self is the external image. It's who the colleagues see. It's who the friends see. It's the, it's the image that we want people to experience of ourselves. It's uh, what I've uh, learned from a friend, Paul Johnson. He calls it the CPI, the chosen projected image. The CPI is that chosen projected image that was birthed in the early years of our lives when we arrived at primary school or preschool and somebody told us how strong their dad was and we said, no, my dad's stronger. Yeah, yeah, sure, he's got that car, but my dad's car is faster. 
And yes, you're actually lying, but who cares? As long as your dad's car sounds faster, that is the win. You got more Barbie dolls than somebody else, but actually they're borrowed and you don't have that many. But we've got this image, we projected it, we made it seem like we're better than we are, and for the rest of our lives, we do our best to make it look like we're not trying to put that up, but we spend a lot of time putting it up, creating this false self, creating a sense of ontological lightness, because if we stop producing that self, if we stop keeping up that image, we ask the question, who am I really? What is actually in there? What if I do stop? What if I have a moment of silence? What if I stop thinking? What if there is quiet? Jesus regularly went away to the quiet place. If we could keep those verses up. Think about it. Very early, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a quiet place. He was not ontologically light. Jesus was the perfect example. As we walk through this journey of the way, we're asking the question, what does it mean to to live the Jesus way? How do we resist our cultural narratives that say we uh, we must just keep up and keep producing the false self as long as it makes you feel good? It's okay. The most exhausting life, and Jesus models something so different, a depth and a gravitas to his life that doesn't matter whether he's doing or not, he coaches his soul in a different type of, uh, of identity. A different sense of gravitas comes about his life. He's not living for the public space. I mean, Jesus did so much in public, and yet it was the secret place that was most profound to Jesus. It was the quiet place where no one was watching that seemed to produce the real strength in the life of Jesus. Think about that for a moment. I want you to reflect on the the amazing dynamic that this profound man who changed the course of history is said of him as these gospel writers. I think of Luke, who who wasn't always a first-hand witness of Jesus, but enough of what was told of Jesus' life and handed over to Luke as he did a careful study. It keeps on coming up to the point that he must write it down as he writes the account of Jesus. He kept on going to a quiet place. When it was early, he would climb a mountain. He, when the crowds were getting too big, he would move to a quiet place. There was the sense that Jesus kept on going to the secret place. It was his secret stash of strength. It was a secret source of identity. He kept going to the secret place. And today what I want to try to do, and I'm going to say it over and over, is I'm going to tell you to go to the secret place. Go to the secret place. If you haven't got a habit of going to the secret place, Go to the secret place. There's an amazing habit in the life of Jesus. I suppose the question would be, well, what what does this thing do? Why would I want to go to the secret place? Why would I keep doing what Jesus does? And beautiful in Mark 6, he invites us to go there. Well, let me suggest a few things, and it's not an exhaustive list, but here's a few things as to why I think I would suggest you go to the secret place. Firstly, I would say that it'll fortify you in times of temptation. I'm not talking about the temptation, maybe you grew up with those cartoons, you know, you got the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other, and it's like, eat the cake, don't eat the cake, eat the cake, don't eat the cake, and that's kind of not the temptation that we should be thinking about. The temptation I'm talking about is is living a life towards the glory of God. It's talking about living a life that, that sees Jesus, that sees who he is and what he's like, and says, you know what, at all cost, I will follow him. I want to be in his presence. It's about saying, no, I don't want to just be in his presence. I want to be formed into his image. And multiple temptations will come my way to say, who cares about being like Jesus? Let's get what I want right now. 
It usually comes in the form of sex or money or power, but it doesn't always fit that. We know what temptation is. It's to, it's to move from the path of, of the Jesus way. It's about being formed into his image. It's about going in, in love towards the world. Not just building bigger fences and cutting people out, but actually saying, Jesus calls me to the way of love. He calls me into mission. And I'm tempted often to just build a bigger wall, whether it's physical or whether it's spiritual, and to say, you know what, I'm done with people. They hurt me. They've, I'm disillusioned by people. Honestly, one of the most wonderful things that's happened through this preaching of the way is my, my sense, my renewed love for people. That Jesus keeps moving towards people in love. And the temptation in our generation and exacerbated through COVID has been to just distance ourselves and learn to survive alone. And we're cutting off one of the most amazing opportunities to change the world. Hey, when you, be, when you find yourself going to the secret place, you become fortified against all kinds of temptations. Why? Because you've experienced the, the love of God. Psalm 63 says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and behold your power and your glory. Listen to this. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Where did the psalmist find his, his courage to fight temptation, it was in the secret place. He had seen in the sanctuary that God's love was better than life. There was nothing in all the face of the earth, no sex, no money, no power could compare to the love of God. He had found God's love in the secret place and he could write in the public place, your love is better than life. I've experienced so much in this life, there's nothing that compares. You throw temptation at me, I've been in the I know what it's like in the secret place to see God, and I'm fortified when temptation comes. The more you get to know God, the more you get to see Him in the secret place, the easier it becomes to face temptation. You, you become like a water on a duck's back. It just it falls off more and more easily. The more we develop an appetite for what is truly beautiful. Remember first kind of six months of coming to faith, and I, I just, I really did experience this amazing sense of God's love being better than life. I was, I was like a deer in the headlights, but I was looking at the most wonderful headlights I had ever seen, God and His love. And I had been living a life where I couldn't imagine socializing without some sort of alcohol, but pre preferably some drugs in me, something that would just boost me, something that would escape me and make me feel a little better about myself. And all my mates were the same. We were all doing that, and that was the way we lived. I remember going out with them after kind of experiencing that God's love is better than life. And there I am, sitting, having these conversations, and I'll never forget this one girl says to me, how are you doing this? You're here, we're all getting, you know, hammered as we call it, and you're just not. And you look happier than us. I remember kind of looking down going, I think I found something else. I honestly don't feel like I felt six months ago. I don't need it. With all my heart, I don't want it and I don't need it. I can't explain it other than that. I think I found something better. I didn't have words at the time. Now I've got Psalm 63 that says, because your love is better than life, I, I no longer needed that stuff. I had a new heart that taught me to face temptation in a whole new way to the point that it was less of a temptation than it ever was. Hey, go to the secret place. That's where you develop a, an appetite for true love. 
That's where you fight temptation. Hey, that's where God restores us when we are exhausted. Mark chapter 1, verse 13. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And listen to this. And the angels were ministering to him. The angels ministered to Jesus. They, they strengthened him. He had been through 40 days of, of gruesome and intense temptation, sex, money, power, all the stuff that all of us have ever longed for get thrown before Jesus as this massive feast, this amazing hors d'oeuvre set before him and said, Jesus, you can have it all. And he is battered and bruised as he faces blow after blow of temptation and he continues to stay firm. And then it says, in that quiet place, he gets restored. The angels come and tend to him. I have no idea what that looks like, other than that in the secret place, Jesus received restoration. And he didn't just receive restoration. Mark chapter 6, verse 31 says, Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, this is Jesus' invitation to his disciples, Come, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. If you're tired and, and you're, you're feeling exhausted, the, the invitation from the king of heaven is to come away and get to the secret place. Get some strength again. Where, where do you get your strength? Where do you get restored when you're exhausted? I know what our culture is selling you. In an attention economy, when you're feeling exhausted, your remote or your laptop screen is going to provide exactly what you need, Right? All the rest and recreation you could ever imagine on one big flat screen. That's what the attention economy is selling us. But it's leaving us less rested than ever before, more anxious than we've ever been before. The invitation is to get into the secret place. The invitation is to go to Jesus, to get with the Father and to enjoy some intimacy, some restoration. It's amazing how Jesus was tended by the angels. I can say for myself that in some of the most exhausting, beleaguered seasons of my life, I've never seen an angel, but I feel like angels have tended to my soul. I don't know what I would do in those exhausting times where it feels like everywhere I turn just feels like, whether it's in my own mind, whether it's externally in the life of church, whether it's in family, whether it's in my own relationships, it's just like everything is tough and I'm exhausted. And you get to the secret place and you go be with your Father in heaven. And a word, an encouragement, a sense of the God who transcends this age and is part of the age to come comes and encourages, brings a, a word of life. Get to the secret place. Get to the secret place if you need to be regularly refilled. Verse 16 we read, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Emphasis on often. Emphasis on often. I think the, the important thing to understand about our lives, if, if your life is a bucket, it's a bucket full of holes. And, and, and yes, we want to feel full of life and vitality. And yes, you could have one of those fizzy drinks every morning. And, you know, that's what they sell you. And you'll bounce up the stairs with extra long legs. And, but, but the point is, is that actually isn't true. The, the real life, the real sense of, of vitality that we so long for, it comes, but it almost feels like it goes as fast as it comes. You just, you know, you get that message at the start of the day that you just didn't need. You woke up and you checked your phone before you got to Jesus and it's like you're limping for the rest of the day. Your soul is like, I can't believe this person told me that and, and sent me it at that time of the day. Or you arrive and you hear that your colleague got the promotion that you were hoping you'd get. 
Or your friend got through something that you've never been able to get through, and, and somewhere deep down, this envy kind of just festers. And before you know it, this, this bucket of life that is meant to be so filled with effervescence and joy and optimism is depleted. And we walk through our lives kind of, I would say, quarter full, often running on empty. Why did the Son of God himself need to often withdraw to lonely places if he himself also didn't have leaks in the bucket? If he himself also didn't need top-ups of life that comes straight from heaven? He often withdrew to the secret place, to, to lonely places, because he knew it was there and only there that he could get the life that his soul so desperately, desperately needed. It's in that place where you wrestle through. It's in that place where you prepare yourself for difficulty. It's in the secret place where so often God prepares you for the day ahead, the week ahead. And you find yourself facing new challenges and you're so glad you got to the secret place. Because you go, oh, yeah, God, I feel like you warned me about that. The verse we read together, oh, God, you set me up for today. I can't believe that I read that, you know, in this life there will be troubles, but take heart. I'll be with you. I read that today. Oh, my gosh. And here I am watching my colleague get the promotion I'd hoped for. Whew. So glad I got to the secret place. You prepared my heart, Jesus. Father, you affirm me that you love me regardless of whether I get this thing or not. Oh, it's in the secret place that your life gets top-ups of, of true vitality. Get to the secret place. Tell the person next to you, get to the secret place. It's in the secret place that you'll find that God will also provide humble strength through difficulty. We, we're going to face difficulty. I've told you that a million times, and you don't need to, uh, me to tell you that. Life is difficult. I remember uh, in Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, amazing story, one of my favorites. Uh, David is not the king of Israel. In fact, the king of Israel is trying to kill David. So he develops a bunch of, uh, a small army uh, filled with men who are distressed, who are in debt, and are disillusioned. How's that for a cool army to, to uh, gather to yourself? A bunch of dudes who are pretty dysfunctional and uh, have their lives all out of sync, and they go to David and say, lead us. So David begins to lead them, and he, you know, he's quite successful, and this army begins to grow, and he begins to grow in success, and God is with him, and one day they go out on this venture, and uh, they do a whole bunch of stuff, and they come back at the end of this venture, only to find that there is nothing there. No woman, no children, no cattle. They've lost everything. This is like, hey, won't you house sit, and uh, they come back, and you burnt the house down. With all their Bitcoin kind of credits, everything is gone, life, retirement, all the records, it's gone. And they look at you and go, hey, what the heck did you just do there? That's not cool, bro. David has lost all their houses, all their retirements, all their family, all their hopes and dreams have disappeared. And they come back from this moment and they look at David and says they want to kill him. Disillusioned, in debt dudes who have got lots of spears in their hands, never a good recipe when they say we want to kill you. What does David do in a moment like that? I mean, what do you do when a, an army, your own army, are looking at you and it's your fault, right? Listen to what David does. It says in 1 Samuel 30 verse 6, and David strengthened and encouraged himself in the Lord. David went to the secret place. What a remarkable thought. This is 3,000 years ago. David goes to the secret place. 
He doesn't go to, you know, the best management book he can find to go, well, what's the best leadership tip? What does John Maxwell say now? How do I get through this one? He goes to the secret place and he finds strength in God because things are tough. Where do you go in difficulty when everything has hit the fan and you don't know what to do? It's a telling sign of what we really trust. It's a telling sign of where we really have our hope. I'd suggest to you that you go to the secret place, that you go find your strength in God, that you do what David did and find strength and courage in the Lord. Get to the secret place. Hey, get to the secret place if you need intimacy. We live in a world that is intimacy starved, increasingly so, and that's why we're doing all kinds of things and we're trying out all new ways to relate because we're so desperate to just feel loved. And it's each person to their own trying to find some way to feel the sense of love. But Jesus models something different. He goes to the secret place. He doesn't put pressure on a spouse or a kid or a friend to be his primary source of intimacy. He often withdrew to the secret place. John chapter 5, it says, I only do what I see my Father in heaven doing. He developed such a beautiful sense of relationship with God in the secret place that it was, there was a sense by which he could see what God was up to. He knew his father so intimately that he could witness what he was doing because he was in this secret place. He had a relationship with God that wasn't a, a public one. His public ministry was fueled by his private intimacy. Is your public life fueled by your private intimacy or is it the other way around? Are you trying to feel affirmed so that maybe you can go to God and say thanks from time to time? I'd suggest that we live in a world that desperately needs people who don't put the burden of intimacy on others, but come to people with an overflow of love and ability to give intimacy because we found it long before we saw anyone. Long before anyone had woken up, we had already received a sense of the affirmation of God, a sense of the love of God. Honestly, it's in the secret place that I think I got my life back. I can't tell you how many times in my life it's been in that secret place where none of us, I couldn't even find words at times. When all your words are, are turned into tears. And all your tears are, are, are a version of a prayer that says, God, I don't know what's next. I don't know how to answer this question. I don't know how to love this situation well. I don't know. But I do know that I need you. And so I come with whatever I've got just to be with you, to lean into you, to be in that place. It's the secret place. I, I think of the secret place almost like a womb. It's a, it's a place that is so wired to produce life. The womb is, has been designed by God to look after and to, and to create life. I think in the secret place, that's what God does. So many of us, we kind of go, I'm just too busy to be in the secret place. Who of you know Susanna Wesley? Ever heard of her? Not as many as you've heard of John Wesley or Charles Wesley. Well, those guys started the Methodist movement. Susanna Wesley was John and Charles's mother. Those of us who say, I'm too busy, it's too crazy. My three kids are, are just causing too much chaos. I'll never be in the secret place. Well, listen to this. Susanna Wesley vowed that she would never spend more time in leisure entertainment than she did in prayer and Bible study. I could stop there, but I won't. Even amid the complex, 
the most complex and busy years of her life as a mother, she still scheduled two hours each day for fellowship with God and time in His Word. And she adhered to that schedule faithfully. The challenge was finding a place of privacy in a house filled to overflowing with children. She gave birth to 19 children, uh, nine of whom died in infancy. She had 10 living in her home. Okay, just a bit of context. 10 people living in her home. Mother Wesley's solution to this was to bring her Bible to her favorite chair and throw her long apron over her head, forming a sort of tent. Listen to this. She, this became something akin to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle in the days of Moses in the Old Testament. Every person in the household, from the smallest toddler to the oldest domestic helpers, knew well to respect this signal. When Susanna was under the apron, she was with God and was not to be disturbed, except in the case of the direst emergency. There in the private, the privacy of her little tent, she interceded for her husband and children and plumbed the deep mysteries of God in the scriptures. This holy discipline equipped her with a thorough and profound knowledge of the Bible. It's awkward, right? I just don't have time. My life's too busy. I'm going to spend eternity with Susanna Wesley. Try telling her that. It's a wonderful example of a person who's saying, I need the secret place. I live off the secret place. It's out of that, no doubt, that was this womb that birthed two revivalists, John and Charles Wesley, who started the Methodist movement and changed the world. It was in the birthing place of a mother's prayers. I think the secret place could probably be understood in, in two pro, uh, main ways, physical and spiritual. There's a physical time and a place that I would suggest that you set aside, get some time, get a space, and try to just be with God. It's often a favorite chair, a little room, a quiet space, an apron over the head. I don't care. Your favorite beach walk, as long as it's accessible and it's regular and you can do it and you can be with the Bible if possible, you want to meet with God. Note on the Bible, by the way, I don't know if you know this, when Jesus climbed mountains, he didn't exactly carry scrolls up the mountain when he went to be with his father. He had already committed those to memory and, uh, and he knew the scriptures, so he did take the Bible up, up the mountain with him, but he took it in a whole different way. He took it because he had studied it. The point of being in the secret place is not to regurgitate scriptures. He looked at the Pharisees and said, you guys know the Bible as well as I do. But your, your, your lives are like whitewashed tombs. You look cool on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. Getting to the secret place is not about opening your Bible and, and doing what you know, your Sunday school teacher told you to do. It's about meeting with your Father. It's about receiving heavenly words of love and power and grace to live out the very complicated, very difficult world in which we live with the hearts that are filled with temptation and trial and expectation and desires, filled with beauty and creativity. You take all of that stuff to the presence of a loving Father and you say, here I am, all of me before all of you, come, let's meet, let's talk, I'll do some talking, you'll do some talking, I'm going to need the scriptures, but I'm going to use the scriptures to help as a springboard to meet with you. The scriptures are not the magic potion, they're not the lantern that I rub so that I can get the presence of God, they just help me to know who I'm meeting and what he's like and what he might say in return, but I use the scriptures not as a magic formula. I want to be with God. 
There's a physical reality, but there's also a spiritual reality. The secret place goes with you, by the way. The secret place isn't just something that you, you need to be once a day in the morning and then you kind of switch off and close and go do your day. No, no, we're walking human beings who are spiritual, who have hearts, and, and we walk into our world living with this beautiful secret place. It's almost like a vault or a, 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 a locked up amazing space that only you've got the key to. Mary knew the secret place. In Luke chapter 2, it says, Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. Her relationship with Jesus began to develop inside of her this safe, this vault, this castle, this fortress into which she only let the beautiful things of God into. And she stored them up because she knew there were times in life where she would need to withdraw from who she had known God to be. You get to the secret place and you find yourself sometimes in the middle of the day going through life and meetings are back to back, but you take five minutes to be in the secret place. Maybe it's to make withdrawals from the morning secret place. Maybe it's as you walk to the next meeting and you go, God, I, I, this morning I was with you. I feel frazzled and far from you right now, but we were in the secret place together and you told me you'd be with me through this day. And in these next moments as I walk into this next meeting and my brain feels like it's, it's about to fry, I remember that I'm with you and you with me. And what you said this morning, I'm trusting, will actually be true in this next moment because I live out of the secret place. Moses had a bush, a burning bush, that he experienced power and calling. It's in the secret place that you could be called. This church exists because of the secret place, by the way. I used to walk up the mountain. I lived on Devil's Peak. would walk up the mountain and pray every, you know, probably two, three, four times a week. And I'd, I'd use it as exercise, get to the top and just stop. And I'd look down and say, God, give us the city. I want to love. I want to change the city for your glory. What I didn't know was that I was standing on the precipice of Devil's Peak. And I promise you, I looked straight up the West Coast Corridor. For about nine years of my life, I stood on a mountain and I stared straight into Liberty High School. I stared straight into Bloberg. I stared straight at Bloberg Mountain at the base of which we are now of this hill. I looked up there, and it was in that place, in the secret place, that God began to prepare my heart and our hearts to do this. God calls us in the secret place. He does amazing stuff, stuff we don't even know He's doing. It's in the secret place. Jonah got a second chance, tried to run away. Maybe you need a second chance. Go to the secret place. God is very gracious. He's very generous. He'll give you a second chance. It's in the secret place. God taught David to kill Goliaths. How are you doing? Are you going to the secret place? I'd encourage you to get to the secret place. I want to invite the band to come join me up here. But I want to tell you that whilst the band are coming up, I've noticed a direct correlation in my life between how much time I spend in the secret place and how irritable I am. Nikki, I'm never irritable, hey? But if I am... There's a direct correlation between how much time I've spent with Jesus and how irritable I am, how courageous I am, how willing I am to face the really difficult things internally and externally. Direct line. Have you been with God? My peace, my ability to be content when life's not going my way, direct correlation between the secret place and my own peace, my ability to be generous. It's when I've been in the place of God's generosity that generosity flows from me. My joy, my creativity, there is a direct line between my time in the secret place and all those things. 
Proverbs looks us in the eyes and says, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. How are you doing at guarding your heart? Maybe as I land, I just want to suggest that possibly for some of us, we, we go, I'd like the secret place, but at the deepest level when I go there, I just don't think I'm worthy. It's probably if we're honest with ourselves, what majority of us would say is, I've just done too much. Too much bad stuff. There's no ways that I, Rog, maybe you, because you get paid to be a Christian and you seem to do a decent job and you smile a lot, you can go be in the secret place, but I can't. You don't know what I've been up to. You don't know the thoughts I think. You don't know the actions I've done. It's amazing teaching in the book of Romans that says you've died to the moral law. The, the law, Moses' law is still around. It still comes and accuses you and says, yes, you, you cheat. Yes, you steal. Yes, you do naughty stuff. But the book of Romans says, no, you died to the law. How did you die to law? Because Jesus lived the perfect life you could never live. And in his death, you joined him and you also died to the law so that the law can't look at you and go, naughty, naughty, naughty. No secret place for you today. The father's frowning. He's not smiling. Romans says, no, you died to the law and now you are made alive with Christ. The law is still alive, but you now no longer married to him says Romans. You were married now that you now that you died, the covenant has ended. The accuser, the relationship with that one is gone. You've got a new spouse. You've got a new relationship. You've made a new covenant. You're now married to Christ. It's a new law. It's a law of love. And he says, come to me anytime. It's based on grace, not on performance. He will change you. He'll change what you love. He'll change, uh, he'll change your sinful habits, but it'll take some time. But get to the secret place. Don't get to the secret place because you've been a good person. Get to the secret place because Jesus was a good person on your behalf. And he died on your behalf so that you could die to that old accuser. And you could rise again to new life. You can't do that without faith, though. The beauty of that is that it's free. Faith is just given. You can have it right now. Right where you're sitting, you just say, God, I trust you. I'm tired of, of my own lack of intimacy. I'm tired of living a life apart from God. I want to know what it's like to, to live the adventure of the secret life. I want to know what it's like to have a strength that no one can buy, that no one could steal from me, that can never be taken away. <clears throat> I'll land with this story. The Roman uh, soldiers looked at many people who were persecuted and killed in the Colosseums. They were martyred for their faith. One of the most amazing things to, as a Roman was to die a noble death. And so many martyrs, Christian martyrs in the early centuries of the church, they were so peaceful. They were so calm. They were so content in the face of their own death that there were Roman soldiers who envied them, who wanted a death like theirs because they'd been in the secret place, because their intimacy, their, their, their joy transcended what a spear through the heart could or what hanging upside down or a lion in their face could ever do. They weren't ontologically light. They had a depth that was given them through intimacy with God. They had a sense of who they were that transcended this life. Father, let's stand together. Father, we want to go to the secret place. We don't want to be ontologically light, thrown to and fro by the winds of life and the waves of this world that can just sway us. 
one piece of bad news and we're messed up. It's in the secret place that we get to know you and be with you, to be with our Father who affirms and loves us. As we sing this song, I ask that you would you would coach us back to a fresh love of the secret place, fresh desire to just be with you, to know you and to enjoy you. Coach us to that end. We're just rookies, we're babies learning. Jesus, you're the master. We're the apprentices just trying to walk the way, but we want to go this way. We ask you to teach us. If we don't know how to read our Bibles, I pray that we'd have the courage to have someone help us. If we don't know how to, to pray, that we'd ask someone to coach us. But that we would just try, Lord, that we would just use our words to be with you. Oh God, we choose today to go to the secret place.